you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be today as we continue this series entitled Mission Critical. Last week we took a look at what our mission is as a church and we believe that Jesus lays out his mission for the church in every generation and every geographic location in Matthew 28 whenever he commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations. So our mission is to make disciples and if we are to make disciples then what are the resources or the elements that are critical to that disciple making mission? That's what we want to spend these next four weeks talking about. What are indispensable resources? God has given us that equip us to make disciples, equip us as disciples, but also to make disciples. And so our text this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, as we turn our attention to those critical elements that God has given us to make disciples. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, if you don't have a copy of it, it'll be on the screen behind me. Peter writes these words, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now listen, church, there's not a man or woman or a child that is an island unto themselves, right? We all have different people and experiences in our lives that have contributed to the shaping of our life. We're all shaped by something or someone. All right? there's, there's no one who's an island unto themselves. Some of us have been shaped by our families. Our families of origin have shaped us in profound ways, in practical ways. Right? For instance, for some of us may have our, received our work ethic from our parents. We saw them labor long hours and work hard to provide. And so now we labor long hours and work hard to provide because they've shaped us into the kind of people who have a healthy work ethic or great loyalty toward biological family. And we're always there through thick and thin, never turn our backs. We're always leaning in and not leaning away. Some of us have been shaped by friendships, right? I can think of many people in my life who have shaped me that I've walked alongside of, that God's brought into my life either for a season or for the duration of my life, uh, who have shaped me in significant ways, uh, developed interests or hobbies alongside of me, right? And we enjoyed doing things together and we spent time, significant amounts of time together. Maybe we're shaped by our culture. And listen, culture doesn't just shape us in negative ways, it can also shape us in positive ways. Like the particular subculture in which we live here in the heart of Rockwall County um, at many times has shaped individuals who are a part of it to have an appreciation for church involvement and even to instill Christian values in their kids as they try to raise them. Or maybe you've been shaped, all of us have been shaped by internal desires. Right? There's all these external forces that shape us but also internal ones that form us as well. So we're shaped by desires. There's some of us who just have a merciful heart, a compassionate heart, a care and concern for those who are around us. And so we love and care for them and we move towards them in their need. Right? We all have been shaped by family, friends, desires, culture. Right? But not any, none, of, none of those shaping influences in our lives are sufficient to shape us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Right, because last week we said that a disciple of Jesus is someone who orders their everyday ordinary life around the message and the mission of Jesus. They side with Jesus against themselves. What Jesus says, if you come after me, you must deny yourself. Right? You side with me against yourself at times. You must serve me instead of yourself. 
right? So we're ordering our lives around the message and mission of Jesus and our family, our friends, our culture, or our internal desires are not sufficient in and of themselves to make us into the kinds of people who would serve Jesus instead of ourselves and, and, and side with Jesus against ourselves. They're just not sufficient for that, right? Because the same family that taught you a good work ethic also may have given you a hot temper, <laughs> Right? The, the, the same friendships that shaped in you like a love for certain interests or hobbies may have also right, shaped you in profound ways by encouraging you to, to fill yourself on the pleasures of sin. Right? The same subculture that's given you an appreciation for church and Christian values may have really inoculated you to the true gospel because you think Christian values are enough or that they're sufficient to save you. And it might have given you an appreciation for involvement in church, but not a priority to church attendance and going deep in relationships with people. Right? And the same internal desires that at times have led you to love and serve those who are around you can also betray you at times and lead you to use and abuse others. And so listen, none of those influences are sufficient to shape you into a disciple of Jesus. But the good news is this, that God's given us a resource that is sufficient. Right? He's given us a resource that is powerful. He's given us a resource that is infallible. It will never steer you wrong. It will never lead you down the wrong trail or path. It will equip you for every good work to which God has called you. This resource, it will affirm and challenge you. It will convict you of your sin and it will comfort you in your suffering. Because it contains both principles and promises that God has given. It unfolds the brokenness of humanity as a result of sin, but it also unfolds the beauty of God. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's this powerful and, 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 and infallible resource. It ultimately points us to the solution for our sin, who is Jesus our Savior. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Scriptures. And the text that we just read this morning, Peter says, in fact, he commands us to crave it. He says, crave the word. Crave the word. Look, at, look, look back at the text in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter commands us to be hungry for Scripture whenever he says long for the pure spiritual milk. And when he says the pure spiritual milk, what he's referring to is the word of God. It is the Scriptures. Now, why do I say that? Why do I make that connection? If you go back into chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in verses 22 to 25, Peter says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Boom, chapter 1 closes, chapter 2 opens, and Peter says, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Peter comes right off the heels of talking about the imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God that has brought us from death to life. And then he says, long for the milk. And so he's saying what it, the milk that Peter's talking about is the Word. It is the seed that has brought us to life. And so Peter says, crave the Word. 
But notice how he says we are to crave it. He says like newborn infants. Now it's, it's been a bit since I've had a newborn infant in my house, okay? Um, it's been at least, at least almost eight years, okay? Coming close to eight years. But I can remember, still I've slept since then a little bit, but I can remember what it was like to bring a newborn infant home from the hospital and how insatiable their hunger was, right? Because a newborn infant cries every three to four hours until it gets fed or dies, right? One of the two is going to happen, right? Until it makes your life miserable enough to feed it and nourish it and fill its belly or until you just fall asleep from exhaustion, right? right? That's just a part of life with an infant in the home. And I can remember as a, a new parent seeing my children, both my son and my daughter, right, turn their heads towards my wife's chest and begin to open their mouth about every three to four hours and just kind of do this. Look like Pac-Man, right? Because uh, they were trying, they were, they were, they were, their stomachs were empty and they were trying to be fed, they were trying to be filled. In fact, there were oftentimes whenever it was time for them to be fed and I might have been holding them, they would turn their head toward my chest and start mouthing. I'm like, sorry, dude, I got nothing, I, I can't do anything for you, Right? But listen, they root, that's the technical term for it, they root for their mother's milk. And what Peter is saying is this, in the same way that a child, that an infant turns its head toward its mother's breast and roots, he says, turn your head toward the Bible and open your mouth to be fed and filled. That's the way he says you're to crave the word, like a newborn infant. It's a beautiful picture that he uses there. He says, crave it, long for it, hunger for it, have an appetite for it. But he also tells us where this craving is, it comes from. Right? Because this is not a natural craving for the Word of God. It's a supernatural craving. Look at what he says in verse 3. He's in P- verse 3, Peter says that our craving is dependent upon our tasting. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that you might buy it, you might grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, so if you've tasted of the goodness of God and of the kindness of God and of the grace of God and of the mercy of God, of the majesty of God, of the beauty of God, of the holiness of God, if you've tasted of God as good through this word by which he's brought you to life and given birth to you, then you naturally long for more of what you've tasted to be good. I remember a number of years ago whenever I had a chance to travel to Russia on a mission trip and I, we were working in a, partic- in a kind of uh, interior community in, in Russia, in interior of Russia, and we were working in a, in a small town uh, with a lot of school-aged kids doing a soccer camp. Now, I had no business doing a soccer camp in Russia, all right? Never played soccer, never coached soccer, had no business there. All I was there to do is get schooled in soccer and tell them about Jesus, right? That's why I was there. And so we were doing a sports camp there, and as a part of our, our time there, they fed us in the school cafeteria. Now listen, school cafeteria food in the States is one thing. School cafeteria food in Russia is quite another. And one day for lunch, I remember them bringing out plates of boiled liver. Yeah, that was exactly my response as well. But as a, as a good foreigner who's wanting to maintain a reputable witness with these people that we're working with, I'm holding my nose, right, and I'm eating this boiled liver. 
It was the most disgusting thing I'd ever tasted in my life. And I can guarantee you that because it was so unpalatable for me that I did not develop a craving for, I didn't come home and be like, babe, we got to get some liver and a pot and water, toss those suckers in there and let's feast. But I can tell you that every time that I have a filet that's cooked to perfection, right, with just enough, just enough red in the middle, right, to where it's just a, it's so juicy and tender, and I cut into that thing, and it just kind of melts in your mouth. You don't even have to chew it almost. It just kind of melts in your mouth. You know what I want? I want more because it tastes good to me. And Peter says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good through the word that has brought you to life, which is, he says in verse 25 of chapter 1, the good news. See, that is where we taste of the goodness of God in the gospel. That God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That Jesus, being born into the world has lived in our place and died in our place, been raised from the grave, ascended to heaven. One day He will return from there to, 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 to bring into all of the fullness of God, see Him face to face for all of eternity, all those that He's gathering for Himself right now. Right? That's the good news. That though we are sinful to the core that God is holy and just and loving to the core and that He's done something about our sinful condition in the sending of His Son. And if that is good to you, if that tastes good to you, you see that in the, very, in the Scriptures, then you know what you want to do? You want to turn your head to the Bible and say, feed me, fill me, give me more of what I've tasted to be good. That's what Peter is saying. Right? See, if you live your life and read your Bible from the perspective that every other world religion approaches God, because every other world religion approaches God this way, if, and says this, I do so God will. Every other world religion approaches God. They look to God and say, I do so God will. But the Bible, Christianity says, God did so I do. It's a totally different perspective, completely different foundation upon which you build your life. You're not coming to God saying, I do so God will accept me. I obey so God will accept me. I'll read so God will accept me. No, God has accepted me by grace through faith and in Christ and what I've tasted to be good in the gospel, I want to get more and more and more and more and more of in His Word. He has, so I do. It's beautiful. That's the gospel, church. And if you've tasted of that as good, then you're going to want more of it. If you forget that, then you're going to read the Scriptures out of duty and they might taste bitter to you rather than being like honey in streams of living water. Which has been most true of your experience in 2018? And which do you want to be true of your experience in 2019? Your craving is dependent upon your tasting. Now listen, why? Why is, this, why is all this so important? Because listen, the word, this milk that God has given us, in the same way that a mother's milk nourishes and matures and grows her infant, the word of God matures and grows and shapes us. 
We are shaped by it. If you go back to the scripture, back to the text, in verse 2, Peter says that the scripture is the primary means by which God used, that God uses to grow us up. Look at what he says. He says, long for the milk that, in order that, as a purpose, in order that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the, the, he says the, the it that you are to, to, that God uses to grow you up is the pure spiritual milk, which is the word. But what does he mean by growing you up into salvation? Listen, what Peter doesn't mean, what he doesn't mean is this. He's not saying that we must grow to some predetermined benchmark of character, conduct, or convictions in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if you are indeed saved, if you are indeed in a relationship with God, if you have indeed come to life, then you will mature because maturity is a sign of life. Then you will mature. And listen, Spiritual maturity is similar to physical maturity in in a number of ways, but in this one sense in particular. Listen, much of physical maturity from from infancy into toddlerhood, I think that's a word, but into the toddler years and into into actual childhood and adolescence, much of that maturity is a growing into your body. Right? I can remember when I hit middle school. I do not look back on those years with fond memories. I don't know anybody who really does. Right? My brother in particular. My brother now stands 6'3". Okay? So he, he's taller than me. He got the height. Right? Um, I like to think I got the athleticism. And I sometimes wonder if I had his height and my athleticism, what could have been. But that's all water under the bridge now. But listen, he, he's 6'3 now, and he's, he's, his body's proportionate and all those kinds of things. But when he hit middle school, and he began to hit those growth spurts, like his feet began to grow, his arms, his knuckles began to drag the ground because his, his torso wasn't growing as fast as his arms were growing, right? And so he just was awkward and gangly, tripping over his feet constantly, didn't have much coordination, right? That was just kind of the way he, he was developing, But once he moved into high school and then into college and the rest of his body continued to catch up with his arms and his feet, then all of a sudden he's towering over me, right? And he's, everything is in proportion, right? That's how spiritual maturity works in our lives oftentimes as well, is that we're growing into this body, into the full stature of the image of Christ, right? And so Peter's not saying you've got to reach some predetermined benchmark in order to have salvation. No, but because you are saved, what God is doing is He's moving you toward the fullness of maturity into the image of His Son. And the means by which He's doing it is His Word. As you turn your head to it and say, fill me and feed me, right? William Gurnall, a Puritan pastor, said it this way. He says, if your hope of salvation should rise to any strength and solidity, study the word of God diligently. The Christian is bred by the word and he must be fed by the word. You've come to life by it and it matures you. It grows you. It moves you from infancy to childhood into adolescence. But unfortunately, For some Christians, they get stuck in there, right? They get stuck in like a spiritual infancy or a spiritual childhood or spiritual adolescence and they never move on quite toward adulthood. How do you know if that's you? Because maybe some of you in the room who are stuck there this morning. Let me give you a few benchmarks you might compare your life to to see if maybe that's where you're stuck. First, first you wrestle 
constantly with insecurity. See, those in childhood and adolescence, they often operate with a great deal of insecurity about their image. They're often really concerned about how they appear to everyone else around them. And see, Christians who are stuck in spiritual childhood or spiritual adolescence, right, they are concerned about how they appear to others around them. As a result, they're never really truly known by anyone. They never really let anyone in. They're never really real with other people. They never really acknowledge real struggles They never really acknowledge specific sins in their life or confess them because they're afraid, they're terrified of how other people would view them. So they're constantly insecure about their image. And yet when you open the Word of God and you begin to read, say you're reading through the book of Hebrews, which would be a good book to read through. They all would be, in fact, but this would be a particularly good book to read through if you're struggling with insecurity. And you come to the text in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, that speaks of Jesus, who was the lamb that was offered in your place, and the high priest who offered the sacrifice. And then it says this about him in 10, 14, that Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That his work is to, has, has perfected you for all time. As you're in the process right now of being perfected, of being sanctified. That it's His work to make you into His image. That it's His work to perfect you. And so why are you so terrified of people seeing some of the sawdust in your life? Of the work that Jesus is doing as He's perfecting you. Some of the scrap material that He's cutting aside. Why are you so terrified of people seeing that? If it's His work... And not yours. There's no reason to wrestle with insecurity, but to have confidence and to move in relationships where you can truly be known. Second, you might be stuck in spiritual childhood or adolescence if you're constantly yielding to fleshly selfishness and unwilling to sacrifice. All right, those in their childhood and adolescence, they feel the pool of selfishness. And unfortunately, as adults, many times we do as well. But they particularly feel that pull of selfishness. Like I, I can see it in my kids. Anytime we have a movie night, man, it is like World War III sometimes between the two of them. Right? Because my son likes particular movies that my daughter despises. And my daughter likes particular movies that my son despises. Right? The kinds of movies they want to watch. And so just argument after argument after argument after argument about which movie we're going to watch. Until eventually, like the atomic bomb of mom or dad saying, well, I will pick the movie, gets dropped. They're like, oh, no, no, we can compromise. (laughs) Right? But selfishness, we all wrestle with that. But those particularly who wrestle with it are those who are stuck in spiritual adolescence. They're incapable of sacrificing for the good of others. So they might serve as long as it's convenient until it gets costly whenever they begin to pull back. And they pull aside. And then you read, as you read through the Scriptures, come across commands in Galatians 5 to serve one another. And you see in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus Himself says, that I didn't come to be served, to have my needs met, but to serve. And I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. And, and as you read that and obey that, it gets you unstuck. Right? Third, those who are in spiritual childhood adolescence oftentimes need to feel a certain way to be obedient. You need to feel a certain way. 
See, those who are in childhood physically or adolescence physically, they frequently rely on their feelings to determine how they will act or respond. Those of you who have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They rely on their feelings. And Christians who are stuck in that developmental phase, they function very similarly. Instead of reading the Scriptures and trusting that what God has said is good and right and true, no matter how I feel about it, they largely depend upon their emotions to guide their behavior. And they end up making statements like, I know the Bible says, but this is how I feel. Right? They're stuck in this adolescence. And then you read Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, where Paul's speaking to the, 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 the Ephesian church. And he says this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life as of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem and in every city that I pass through, I know what awaits me, right? Afflictions, beatings, hardship, distress. And I don't think that as Paul went about his merry way, he's skipping all along the path, feeling like it's night four at youth camp. You know what I'm talking about? Like everybody's on this spiritual high. And so every town he comes into, it's like, man, we just sang my favorite song. All my friends are here. I'm sure he's wrestling with that, and yet he's obedient because he had learned that obedience is not dependent upon emotions and how I feel. Now, we could talk about more, but that's all i got time to talk about because we got to move. All right, you might be stuck in that developmental phase. And, because, and listen, your heart, it will never naturally tell you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Your heart will never naturally tell you that you don't have to feel a certain way to be obedient. Your heart will never naturally tell you any of those things. But the Word will. The Word will. And it will shape you into a person who sides with Jesus against themselves, serves Jesus instead of themselves, and orders their everyday, ordinary life around His message and His mission. See, God intends us to shape us through His Word. And if this is not happening for you, if it's not happening for you, I've got a few reasons why it it might not be, and then we're going to shut it down. Here's the first one. The first one, it might be because you are dead might be because you're dead. See, everything that Peter says in these verses is built on the foundation of what he says earlier in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercies, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in one twenty-three, Peter says, You've been born again, not of imperishable seed, but imperishable, the living and abiding Word of God. So Peter is commanding people who are alive to God to hunger after His Word and be matured through it. But listen, if dead people don't have appetites, okay, there's nobody laying in a cemetery that has an appetite. There's no, they don't have appetites any longer. 
And listen, if you've never been born again, if you've never been regenerated, this is the word theologians use to describe this experience, if you've never come to life from the dead, if you've never crossed over from darkness to light, from despair to hope, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, and He's awakened within you a desire and a longing for Himself and for His Word, then you're not going to crave it. There's not going to be an appetite there because dead people don't crave anything. And so if you're not craving the Word of God, it may be that you've never been born again. And I would love to visit with you about how to be, if that's you this morning. Second, second, you might be, you might be disobedient. Right? There might be some spiritual cancers that are running rampant in your life that are unchecked. See, listen, all sorts of diseases can diminish our appetite physically, right? And spiritually as well. Peter says, put away malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander and deceit. Put these things away. Because I don't know if you found this to be true in your experience, but I have found it to be true in mine, is that whenever I'm giving myself to wearing a mask and living a hypocritical life in which I live and say one thing in front of one person and live and say another thing in front of another Man, that diminishes my appetite for the Word of God because I know that I'm not being real. I'm not being authentic. I'm not being true. I'm in sin. Whenever I'm deceiving other people, whenever I'm slandering and being malicious and I have bitterness rising in my heart, it diminishes my appetite for the Word of God. Instead of putting those things to death, I'm allowing them to flourish and bear fruit in my life and relationships. My desire, my appetite, my craving for God's word decreases. It diminishes. And that may be you this morning. Third, third, it might be that we're just dull. That you've dulled your appetite. Listen, if I gave my kids the chance at four o'clock every afternoon to raid the bag of Halloween candy in the pantry they would go and they would gorge themselves on Fun Dip and Pixie Sticks and Twix and Snickers and Milky Way and Three Musketeers. And then when we sat down and we put a plate of chicken and asparagus and potatoes in front of them at dinner time at 6 p.m., be like, I'm not hungry. Right? Why? Because their appetite has been dulled by the consumption of things that aren't really nutritious for them. They don't really feel, fill and satisfy them in the long run. Right? See, so often, I saw a quote earlier this week um, in, a, in a blog post by a, 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 a retired pastor, his name is John Piper. He says, listen, don't Fill, don't try to fill the cracks with the word. Fill the cracks with other things. Right? Because that's what we tend to try to do in our lives. Right? So say, when we get up in the morning, we've got we, we to check this thing. Right? We've got to see who posted on Facebook the night before. We've got to check social media. Right? We've got to see who, 
who, who's where, who's doing what. We got to check sports scores, like what happened overnight, who got hired, who got fired, like what's going on with my favorite team. We, got, right, we pull up our games and see, so we, like, we, we're, you know, on, on the commute, maybe you sit on the dart train, maybe you're working from home, and before you actually get engaged in the day, right, you're, you're playing, this sounds sad that I even have to say this sometimes to 40-year-old people, but you're playing video games on your phone, right, you're just engaging in that, right, maybe you're pulling up Netflix to kind of, because you fell asleep the night before, right, watching the, the, the season five, episode six of whatever show that you're binging right now, right? And you fell asleep, so you got to finish that before. So all these other things take priority over your time in the Word so that whenever it comes to time in the Word, you take the cracks of your day. Oh, I've got a sliver of time here. I'll just drop the Word in there as opposed to saying i got a sliver of time here. I'll drop Netflix or I'll drop social media in there, but I'm going to prioritize the Word. And so often whenever we live that way, we dull our appetite. Right, particularly when we binge on video content or video games or things that are inconsequential and insubstantial, we lose our capacity to think deeply and substantively about truth. So maybe some of us have dulled our appetite. And then finally, perhaps some of us are just discouraged. Like, man, when I open the Word, sometimes it's just hard. There are passages that I don't understand. Right? I haven't been to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. Right? There are things that I just wrestle with when I see it. Listen, if that's you, and you're like, you know, I start off the year really good. My reading plan, I've got it nailed down. Right? I found it on social media. There are good things about it as well. Right? I found it on Facebook. Somebody else shared this reading plan. And so I got it. I downloaded it. It's on my phone. I got it plastered on my desk right there at the office. And so I start. Man, I make it through Genesis. And I get through Exodus. And I get to Leviticus. And then I get to Numbers. And I'm just derailed for the rest of the year, right? And so, that, but, or I get to things that are just hard, concepts that are difficult, passages that don't make sense to me because I don't know the context. Listen, when I was going through seminary, I had a professor who's since gone to be with the Lord, but one of the things that he said to us that was most profound, that has stuck with me ever since, is he said this, he says, listen, if you were reading a business book that someone had written about how to grow your business or how to, you know, customer service or whatever it was and you came across a principle or a concept that you found difficult to understand one of the things that you might wish for in that moment is an opportunity to call that professor up or call that that author up on the phone and say hey can we grab coffee because I got some questions about what you said that concept there and how it applies in my particular circumstance and you would you would long for that kind of opportunity and he said listen If that's you as you read the Bible, I want you to know that the author is accessible 24-7, 365. Ask him. God, would you illumine to me what this means? Would you show me? Would you help me understand that you would walk in dependence upon him and not just... Not just your own intellectual ability to figure things out for yourself, but would you depend on Him to give you insight that you need? And listen, church, we live in a day in which there is a wealth of resources for you. 
right? There are great websites like the Gospel Coalition, right? Like desiringgod.com. There's great, great websites that are available, commentaries that are available, right? You can, you can go on uh, reputable churches' websites and find pastors much more skilled at Bible exposition than I who have preached through those texts, right? Or taught through those texts. You can find articles and books and all kinds. So don't let a discouragement, because I, I'm having a hard time understanding this verse. Don't let that discourage you and cause you to shut the word and say, I, I just can't figure it out. You know what I've discovered over the years? Right? And it's a principle that's true in archaeology. The deeper you dig, the more treasure you find. And oftentimes, if we just shut the word and we walk away from it with an unwillingness to dig deep, we miss. We miss some of the treasure. So don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. You have the author available and countless saints who have wrestled with those texts, who have gone before you, who can shed insight on them. So as you walk away this morning, what do you do with this? In 2019, if you're going to be shaped by the Word, if you're, to, if you're really going to allow God's Word as a disciple to turn you into the kind of person who would side with Jesus and serve Jesus and order your life around His message and mission, then listen, three things real quick. One, you've got to read it. You have to read it. In order to be shaped by something, you have to have contact with it. I can remember when my kids were younger and they had just Play-Doh everywhere, which we eventually banned from our home because I got tired of cutting it out of the carpet, right? But somebody either generously or vindictively, I'm not sure which, right, dropped off a bucket of Play-Doh and molds on our front doorstep, okay? And so my kids had a heyday with building Play-Doh ovens and building Play-Doh light lamp posts and building Play-Doh couches and Play-Doh people. They'd just take the Play-Doh, they'd stick it in the mold and they'd compress it around it and it would form it into that image. But listen, without contact with the mold, the Play-Doh stayed as a lump. You have to have contact with something in order for it to shape you. You have to read it. William Gurnall, that Puritan pastor, said it this way. He said, Shall God leave but one book to his church's care and study? And shall it not be read? Shall we be told there is a rich treasure laid up in this mine, and we continue so beggarly in our knowledge rather than take a little pains by digging into to come by it? He says, The canker and rust of our gold and silver, which is got with labor harder than is required here will rise up in judgment against many and say you could drudge and trudge for us that are now turned to rust and dust but could walk over the field of the word where an incorruptible treasure lay and would lose it rather than your sloth in 2019 church give yourself to the reading of this book if you give yourself to the reading of any book, give yourself to the reading of this one. And see God shape you through it. But not only read it, but also hear it. Hear it taught. Hear it preached. Discuss it. One of the things we do in our life groups is we sit and we talk about the word together. 
Right? We don't just walk, our hope is that as, even as Brian read earlier in the service, that we wouldn't just hear the word on Sundays, but become doers of the word. We'd have other men and women around us who are, who are pushing on us to press us into obedience to that very word. But in order to be pressed on it, we've got to hear it as it's proclaimed, as it's taught. And listen, in a day and age where technology is what it is, there is no excuse for not hearing the word taught and opened in your local church week after week after week. Some of you are like, there are better podcasts than yours. Well, listen to them. I do too. But listen, don't neglect the, the men who fill this pulpit week after week. Right? Don't be... Don't be pressed negatively into the mold of the culture that says church involvement is good, but church attendance isn't really that important. Be here week after week. Aim to go four for four in the months of, of 2019. Right? Some of you are like, well, I missed last week, so aim to go three for four in January. Aim to go four for four in February. Aim to go four for four in March. Or maybe three because there's spring break in there. Take one of those weekends, come back the other. Prioritize being with the people of God under the Word of God as it's opened and taught and see what God might do. Because some of you heard me say it before and I'll say it again. Is that any given Sunday, God might turn your world right side up as His Word is proclaimed. And then third, and finally, Obey it. Obey it. Make 2019 a year of aligning your life with God's word, not aligning God's word with your life. Right, that's, that's the tendency for some of us, is to read the word and say, yes, but. And if you will make a priority of reading the Word, of hearing the Word, obeying the Word, aligning your life with what God is convicting you of, encouraging you toward, then God will shape you into the kind of man or woman who says, I want to be about Jesus' mission in my everyday ordinary life as I side with Him and serve with Him. Apart from the reading and hearing and obeying of this Word, we will never be successful in the mission that God has given us of making disciples. So cherish it, treasure it, and prize it. Let's pray together. Father, today, we come thanking you for your word that is true and right. We thank you for the way that it speaks. It's living and active. As Paul says, like a two-edged sword it divides the joint from marrow. God, that it divides us to the very core of who we are, that it exposes us, but it also encourages us. At times it conflicts us as we wrestle within our soul to be obedient to it, but it also comforts us whenever hardships are encountered in this life. Father, may we not neglect it, May we not neglect it and assume that we can have intimacy with you apart from what you have said. But in 2019, may we read it, may we hear it, and may we obey it. May we turn our mouths to the Bible 
and insatiably and frequently open them, trusting that you will feed and fill us with the truths that will shape us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.